0: welcome to another episode of Accounting Insider. Kim Nitschke here. Um, we're changing tack a little today. Um, we've got a special guest in the in the uh, Accounting Insider studio. Uh, we've got Andrew Andreev, who is a really close friend of mine, but he's also a very successful lawyer in Adelaide. Uh, we're missing Andrew Montesi today. He um, has double booked, unfortunately. <laughs> so, um, you know, shout out to Andrew. But uh, we will carry on regardless, and we've got an action-packed episode for you today. Um, we are unpacking the life of Andrew Andreev, who um, many people will know him. He's a successful Adelaide and Sydney lawyer, um, very good friend of mine. I've learned heaps from him over the years. Uh, ironically, we went to university all those years ago, but we sort of lost touch. He went and lived in London for a number of years, and then we reconnected. And we'll go through that whole story today. But... Um, I think it's just important that we um, begin by saying that in episode 26 when I was talking about the cost of company culture um, I, Andrew was the lawyer that I had lunch with and uh, gave me the gusto and the um, you know the oomph to go back to the office and basically um, make a tough staffing decision that I was trying to get out of so and Andrew has helped me over the years immensely in a number of sticky situations where um, I've just, received a phone call, freaked out, think, now, who the hell do I ring? Picked up the phone and rang Andrew. So, Andrew, welcome to our show. Thank you. Um,
1: yes, professional in action. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, now, you, you have your own law practice and um, it runs very successfully and I, whenever we catch up for lunch I always take many leaves out of your book. But can you go back to the start when you first got your first job at University of Adelaide. Sorry, you were at University of Adelaide. You got your job at Arthur Anderson. Can you just tell us now, that was the cream job... I dreamt of getting a job there. I didn't even get to interview stage. But w- how did you land a job there? What what was it? Was it good grades? Was it? I know it was your charisma. But I, kn- I know <laughs> that you went to a g- good school, but you weren't at the the top schools in Adelaide. So a lot of that came down to interview technique. Um, who, I, I don't know. Can you just walk us through it? You you finished uni and you did an interview there, and take yeah, it from there. So
1: I hadn't I hadn't actually finished uni at that stage. So. Um I did a commerce degree which I think is where we hooked up. And then I started a law degree. How's that level sort of looking right? Yep. Um, Then started uh, a law degree and I basically got towards the end of the law degree... ...and still hadn't done any work experience. So, you know, you'd you'd go out and have a coffee with somebody from from law school... ...and they'd say, I've just done a clerkship at Finlayson's... ...I've just done a clerkship at, you know, Kelly's or whatever it was. Um, And... I thought I sort of need to give up the surfing and start taking taking work seriously. So um, I looked around for somewhere to get some experience, that's the bottom line. And I had a friend Anthony Feo who uh, is still a good friend and actually still still works with me on and off and he was working at Arthur Anderson at that stage. So um, he said, "Well, you know, why don't you come in and um, and check out what's going on." So ...at that stage I had, I sort of had a focus on IT and IP law, patents... ...and all the sort of sexy tech sort of stuff. And Anthony was working in the tax section. So, you know, when you're at uni people talk about tax... ...sort of like everybody just shuts down. It's just the most boring <laughs> yes. thing you could ever think about. So I thought, okay, so I went in there and, and had an interview and they said... I said, I'm looking for you know work over the over the weekends or holidays, or whatever it is, to get some experience. And they said, well, we're running this sort of cadet program where you can come and, and work full time, and finish off the last year of your uni over two years. And they said, well, Anthony's been doing this for I think it was six months or you know twelve months at that stage, and they were happy with how he was going. So they said, well, you know, come in and 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 do that. So. That's where it, really where it started. <laughs> Didn't have any interest in tax whatsoever. I mean really it was it wasn't even on my radar. Um, okay. And Anthony was just the most amazingly hard worker you've ever met. So he'd, he'd sort of set a good precedent there... ...as far as being able to study effectively, you know, 50 60% load... ...and also work full time. Um, so kicked that off, I think it was sort of January... ...I think it was back 1993, so you know, it's going back a little way now. And... What I didn't realize is that I wasn't going to see daylight for the next two years, <laughs> and I'm and I'm not kidding you. It was, um, uh, it was seven days a week, and seven, seven days. literally seven okay. days a week. And it wasn't just the work. I mean, we had to. I, I think I built something like eleven times my salary. You know, the, the current um, uh, you know benchmark for staff is three, four, you know, maybe four and a half, five times salary if you're lucky, but you know ten or eleven. And I was I was only the second biggest biller at the time. Anthony was the first. So the two of us were studying, sharing notes... ...and billing our asses off basically. And then at the same time we had to do something called OzTax, ...which was an 18-month course which basically you read the entire Tax Act... <gasps> ...from every single section pretty much. And then you got tested at these remote testing... ...you know, we went to Ballarat in the middle of winter and basically... Were, ...you know, drilled by the partners from around Australia and that sort of stuff. So it was really a baptism of fire but the looking back that was really that set me up literally oh. set me up you know because the the rigor and the training um, and the culture that that place had was just off the chart looking mm. back you know I still i still refer back to the things that, that, that I learned then and the things i observed about the culture was just yeah, just phenomenal
0: okay um a lot of people will be interested in, you know, this... Let's just rewind for a moment. And you got in the in the front door but it sounds like you had insight. You know, you, you sort of had an unfair advantage on other people because you had someone embedded in the firm. How much of an impact or how much of a help did that have when you actually applied for the job?
1: Um- I think it helped that Anthony had gone ahead because he was he was an extraordinary worker, mm. you know, and 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 you know smart guy and and just really committed to to it. So I think that they they sort of saw the this concept of a commerce law grad hybrid, you know, okay. where it wasn't sort of the done thing. Um, he'd sort of proved that yeah you could have somebody studying, um, they could work full time, they could still pay their way, they could still contribute to the office. So I think that was that was a positive. Okay, but I I also think. Um, I guess studying the law helped as well because back then you know the law commerce grads in accounting firms wasn't a huge thing I mean, no. obviously obviously now it's almost sort of a standard thing um, I don't I don't know if if there was any I mean at the time so basically when I finished commerce I don't know you, you we finished at the same time there was literally probably a handful of people who got jobs mm. this was back in you know 92 yeah. 91 there was a property recession on it was it was grim you know mm. Um so, so I guess from that, from a commerce grad's perspective, and from somebody who was just coming off that, the base of probably the worst recruiting time in history, as far as you know the professions in Australia were concerned, um, it was looking back at look, it's lucky. I don't know if there's any inside edge other than perhaps just being like contextually different, you know, sort of asking for a holiday job, you know, still studying at uni, mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, I, I, look, mm. to be honest, it's it, it, looking back, it's probably a little bit of a fluke. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, um, yeah. So what, what were your grades like if yeah. I got your
0: I, report Commerce is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. are we talking... Now, mine were all P1s and P2s. Yeah, I
1: no, presume I you are a, a bit better than that, than
0: that
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> So was it a credit so, average so you or...? Get, you had to get it... To, in order to get into into law, it was a postgraduate degree mm. when I was doing it. At Adelaide's so now you can get direct entry. You've got to get, like, my son's... Just doing year twelve now, so he's he's saying you know you have got to get ninety nine point nine five or some crazy mark to get direct entry into law in Adelaide. But back then it wasn't that hard. So okay. what you had to do is you had to do a year of another degree, mm-hmm. um, and then so you were competing with all the people at uni okay. in the second year to get into law at Adelaide. And so you, know, the art students and the science and whatever, all the different people who wanted to go into law. And so. Um, for me, I didn't do spectacularly well in matric. I mean, I got, you know, A's and whatever, but didn't didn't go to the, um, when you go over here to the, um, the governor house or whatever, when you get, them?
0: oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, didn't, yes. You get to do that. Yes, so, government um, house, that's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I got into commerce, and then, but for me, that was my matric first year of uni because I wanted to get into law and I wanted to get in from commerce. And there was, you know, maybe six people got in from commerce back then. And so, I basically found. Out what a library was at that stage because I didn't, hadn't really done a lot of studying sort of mm. prior to that. So I spent a lot of time in the Bar Smith Library, and really just and and also I loved commerce. I mean I'm a lawyer, but fundamentally I'm I'm a business person. So. Um, I really enjoyed my commerce degree and it made it a lot easier. So, yeah, but bottom line is but it, it, it was distinctions, I guess, that sort of okay, stuff, Okay. a few credits here and there. The,
0: the, oh, that, that's way better than I did. <laughs> but, um, so when the um, recruiting staff at Arthur Anderson got your resume, they would have thought, this kid's very switched on, he's very clever.
1: Yeah, they would have seen that I did mm. well in commerce. Yeah, there was no doubt, yeah.
0: Okay. Now, um, let's... We're jumping around all over the place, but let's just talk about when we were caught up this week... You actually bumped into your guy that gave you your first start yeah, at Arthur yeah, Anderson. Like, that was yeah, just yeah, amazing. Can yeah. you just tell us how that felt when you went up
1: to him? Well, and he now looks younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was about forty something when I met him twenty odd years ago. So he's, he's he's obviously looked after himself. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm genuinely grateful for a number of things. Not just you know getting your first job and you can you can work yeah. for you know someone who's an idiot and it just doesn't treat you well or whatever. And mm. just because they give you the first job, you know, there's some level of respect and 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 um, sort of goodwill there. But I think it was a bit different. I mean, it wasn't an easy place to work. It was mm. pretty hard. There was another partner there um, who worked alongside Chris, and um, you know, he, he was he was pretty tough. But he was it was also um, someone who strove after excellence, and that's something that, looking back, I think was a good thing culturally as well. Although he's pretty hard to work for. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I said to him, you know, uh, that I was grateful... ...and that, and that um, there were so many things about what, you know, I do today as an employer... ...that reflect the culture and, and the attitude and, and, and really by example... ...because no, he didn't ever talk about it. Like I, I talk about it with my staff. I talk mm. about culture, talk about, um, you know, um, how they can advance in their careers. He, we, we were just told to work. Right. So I mean, okay. anything we picked up in culture was actually just demonstrated and the classic one is you know you would never leave the office without your jacket on you know and it'd be a 40 degree day and you'd be getting into the lift and you know everybody would have their jacket on and you know the reason was is you just never knew who you were going to see in the lift and you had to present a certain you know you're charging X dollars an hour and people expect to see professional looking people and you can't have you know we weren't allowed to talk about client matters in the lift or at cafes or restaurants and just you know what might seem as basic stuff but ...a lot of that we were taught and it was expected of us... ...whereas most environments these days you go to work... ...and you're just expected to pick all this stuff up. And, and you know, grads just don't know do not mm. know this stuff. So to be put through that cultural and um, the, the cultural training... ...as mm. well as the professional training was something that, you know... ...so many firms don't invest in like they used to. And that's why it had such a good reputation. It was, you know, it was the standout... Um, organisation at that time. It was, yeah, it was good. Awesome. Okay, so
0: today you run a, a law practice in Adelaide and a law practice in Sydney. How many staff have you got in Sydney? How many have you got in Adelaide? Mm.
1: So we've got four in Sydney and six in Adelaide. Okay. So, yeah.
0: And how do you manage your time between both offices?
1: So I... ...travel on a reasonably regular basis most weeks... um, ...but not every week so it sort of depends on what I've got on... ...if I've got more things in one office that I'm overseeing than the other... ...then I'll I'll sort of spend more time in the other office. But generally I'll go over for two days. So I'll leave, get the red eye out on midweek... ...so usually Mm -hmm. um, Tuesday or Wednesday. And then stay overnight and then get the eight o'clock flight back... ...so I get back to Adelaide about ten o'clock at night the following day.
0: So it's two days every fortnight?
1: Yeah, it's probably a bit more than that. It's probably, okay. it's probably two days every, uh, like, three out of four weeks. Okay. So, yeah, so it's, it's six days a month, something like that. Yeah, oh. yeah.
0: So with multi-sites, well, the thing I'm interested in is, and I, I, I find this even in my own office, how do you make sure that every document leaving your office... You're totally happy
1: with. from the Law Society, eh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> This isn't an audit. <laughs> no, no, but um, do you just um, trust the people that are around you to, to, to do everything, or is it all sitting in your inbox waiting for you to approve everything before it goes out the door? Or how yeah. do you manage it? How do you manage so many staff yeah. in so many different
1: locations? So it's actually, I've got a long philosophical response to that because um, I've had to give it a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a long time I didn't have any staff. So I just had myself and maybe one or two staff who usually grads or, or uni students. Um, and I would predominantly do, you know, 100% of the work and um, go, go from there. So I didn't build up staff numbers for a while. Um, the first challenge I had with two officers was just technology. Like okay. even today, even mm-hmm. accessing... ...a file from two locations is just ridiculously difficult. Um, and this was prior to Dropbox and Google Drive... ...and all these sort of different technologies. Um, as soon as you have multiple people hitting those sort of cloud services... ...they still don't really work. Okay, um, That's my view. So we've now got our own little cloud server. Um, that's sort of another, another story. But then the next thing was actually accounting records. So there wasn't zero back then. There wasn't. Okay. Um, we started with a thing called SASU Um, because it was the first online account I know you (laughs) had yours. That's why I was interested in it those years ago. Um, So we had, um, you know, file access issues. We had accounting issues. We had telephone issues. How do you answer telephones in two different states? So we went to a 1300 number with a telephone answering service very, very early on. So we were doing this for 15 years. So this Mm -hmm. is, you know... um, And so there was initially a whole lot of logistical issues about running two offices. Um, And... I was. I've always been one, I'm like I'm a techo. Like I'm, I'm mm. on the bleeding edge of everything. But at the same time, I try and keep everything really simple. So I go through a lot of these technologies and just throw them out and end up with two or three ones that sort of underpin things. Um, on the staff side of it, really, what the problem I was trying to solve there was a problem I faced as a staff, as someone working for somebody was. Um, hierarchy. I'm, I don't deal well with hierarchy. I don't do well with authority. So I was I resented being what I thought was held back, not given enough rope, um, and you know, not given. I, I sort of joked that I photocopied for two years. You know, I didn't really, but you know, you feel like you had mm. sort of thing. And so when I started employing people, I I wanted to um, give them as much rope as they could. They could physically handle probably a bit more, but I also didn't want to get sued and go broke. So mm. um, I worked at Macquarie Bank for a while, and they had what they called a loose type management philosophy, which was the loose bit was basically you you could go into work and you could do anything. Literally, if I, if I wanted to go and you know finance the buses for the Department of Defence or um, you know raise capital for a for a high tech company, I could do any of that any day of the week. That was the loose bit, and that's the very entrepreneurial side of Macquarie Bank. The tight bit was that they're a bank so they've got a credit... You, ...you know, you can't actually physically talk to the credit people... ...even when you're in the bank. Um, you know, you you need to do certain reporting. It's limited reporting but you, there's certain key reporting. So they had this loose type management philosophy... Um, ...which Alan Moss was really the proponent of... And, ...and enabled them to grow but maintain that entrepreneurial spirit. So I sort of adopted that in the legal model... ...and and also sort of renamed it the... or well, two things. One is the subsidiarity model which is... In European political terms, it means that you delegate authority... ...to the lowest competent resource, so push down things. And mm-hmm. in, within Europe that's basically you know the different sovereign states, et cetera. Um, and then the other idea was the upside-down pyramid. So most professional law firms and accounting firms have a partner... ...who has all the client contact and delegates down the pyramid... ...then it goes back up the pyramid, goes up and down, up and down, costs a lot of money... and. The problem with the normal pyramid is that the staff at the bottom get bored because they don't see any staff, they don't take any responsibility, you know. And the problem at the top is that the guy's so busy, he can't actually manage all the files. Hmm. So it limits the growth of the practice. So I sort of thought, well, if I tip it upside down and apply the subsidiarity model, I can have um, very junior staff doing quite advanced work if they're capable of it. And what that means is that they don't get disillusioned. In fact, they get, you know... Overwhelmed, really. Mm. A lot of people say that they like the, the autonomy, but when you actually give people autonomy, most people can't handle it. Particularly young people. So um, the environment's not for everybody, but for the people who it does suit, it's 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 a really really fun place to work, from that and challenging place to work. So applying all those different things has enabled me to um, develop a level of leverage that's really unprecedented in the legal business. So you know to have one principle and Nine lawyers working for you is is in two different offices is is a little bit off the chart. We've got, I think at the moment, two hundred and seventy seven active matters in the firm. You know, and okay. I, I physically can't manage those. I can't. I don't even know. The, I mean, I know the clients, but you know, I I, I can't, There's just not enough hours in the day for me to manage those. So um, then I use the loose type things. So we've got the loose thing is that I ena- enable people to solve problems um, however they think that they should be solved. Um, but within the confines of working in a certain way. So the way that they manage their matters, the way they report their mistakes, the way they deal with the mistakes and own them, um, the way they deal with each other collegiately. Um, There's a few principles, which we have quite a detailed manual about, um, which enables us to take on and process quite high level work with relatively junior resources um, ...in a very controlled way. And then on top of all of that we, we do another thing that I picked up... ...at Arthur Anderson which is just a, an, an amazing amount of training. So we replace grey hairs with training. So you've got young staff, engaged staff, responsible staff... Um, ...who are well trained and um, have, a, have a lot of direct... Um, client contact. So one of the issues that we have is you know, clients will sometimes say... ...when they first meet me and, and the staff member... ...and then they sort of get left with the staff member a little bit... ...they go, you know, wow, we were a bit concerned... ...because you know Drew looks pretty young or whatever... ...but hey, we're, we're, we're really happy with how he's going. So there's that, that part of what I need to do is educate the client about the system... Mm. And, ...and how I'm there over the top of it. But, um, you know, we, that, that's sort of how the system delivers the results. It's a lo- answer, eh? uh, No, no, no. I, I <laughs> love that model
0: because you're, you, you, well, the way that I interpret that is you're giving your staff a tremendous amount of autonomy, but a tremendous amount of training as well. So they're actually punching way above their weight. Yeah. However, um, and and they are given um, a. Tr- with that responsibility comes a tremendous amount of um, self-regulation. So they need to know when they need to put their
1: hand up. you've got to have the right right staff... ...and they they need to be comfortable to put their hand up. So where we get into trouble, where I get into trouble... ...is if I have a staff member who clearly either... ...doesn't know what they don't know... Mm. ...or thinks they know something they don't know. Yes. And unfortunately at the two to three year level... um, you know, uh, they go through what I call legal adolescence and you know that can be difficult to handle and a lot of you know a lot of people are either you know leave by way of a mutual decision or, or uh, um, you know coached into understanding that they either need to change or they might need to find a more structured environment which you know often, often is the case
0: okay um, the, the law firm is inherently different to the accounting firm in, in insofar as with my business I've got customers coming through the door every 12 months, I've got to redo their accounts and their financial statements and everything. Law firm is different, you might see the customer once and then they might go away and come back in 10 years time. How do you work your time between um, charging out work, managing staff and also the marketing side of your business which is a huge component of any law firm that they have to be thinking about marketing 24 seven because as soon as they finish this job, they're not
1: sure exactly when the next one's coming from. How do you manage that? I think that's the fear of that, of not having that recurrent income, was what kept me as a small firm for, you know, seven to ten years out of the fifteen-year history of the firm, because um, it was always it always felt good to have more work than you could you could physically do. Mm. Um, the problem with that is that I then let people down as far as you know. You tell them to get it in a week, and then they get it in four weeks, um, and you know you're working weekends and late nights and lots sort of stuff. So. But yeah, the, fear, the fact that there wasn't that recurrent income... ...to build up an expense base was something that you know, took me a long time... ...to get comfortable with. You know, that's a whole new discussion about, mm, about, sure. about living with that uncertainty and fear. But, um, you know, as you mature and the work just keeps coming in... ...you sort of think, well, you know, I, I honestly can't predict... ...what work I'll have in three months' time. Mm. And I've now got, you know, the sort of ten of us... Um, sitting around looking at each other, you know, with no work in the door potentially in three months, um, but the reality is, you know, we've we've grown revenues every year, mm. you know, pretty much for, for, for since the beginning. So, um, how do we do that? I think one, well, one of the things we did, um, one of the coming back on the technology side, is um, I read a lot of self help and management books, as you know and you do. That's yes. one of our common interests. Um, and everything I read about marketing said that. Um, ...you need to know, like your next job's going to come from your last job. Okay. And there's a maximum in the law industry that, you know... ...the best marketing is doing the work on your desk, right? Mm. So my problem was is that I couldn't... ...I didn't have an accounting or a CRM package... ...that would actually track where my work came from. Um, So I I didn't know, you know, who to look after... ...who to um, talk with, you know, take to lunch, all that sort of gear. Um, And so I I, I basically set up my own... ...practice management system on, on FileMaker Pro... ...which is like a, like an Apple database sort of um, platform. And the, the whole reason for doing that... ...even though there's hundreds of law practice management things... Mm. ...you know, is I wanted a structured way to understand my relationships. So basically the way the thing works is that I can track back... ...to who's referred all the jobs in... And then who referred me to those referrers... ...and who's referred me to those referrers, blah, blah, all the way back... ...so that I can I can structure it at different levels... ...and pinpoint, you know, five people five years ago... ...who represent 20% of my contact base. And I can then put... Like, ...lay over the top of that um, the, the revenue that they're responsible for. So what that does is it gives me a deep insight into where my work's come from. Which all the marketing books say you should know. But none of the CRM systems actually give you that. Wow. So... Um that's one of because referrals are so important to us and those relationships, I really wanted to understand them in a in a in a, um, in a real sense, in a data sense. So that's one, this one thing. Um, the other thing about law and marketing in my view, and I've had this for a long time, is that, ...law is no longer about restricting access to information. Like in the old days you would pay for your library... ...you'd spend a hundred grand a year on a library... ...and you'd discharge your clients stupid rates... ...to tell them what's in the books, right? Mm. Those days are over, right? Everybody's got Google. So laws really change to um, a mentoring role. They come and pay us for our experience... ...and our assistants doing something they probably already know how to do. Mm. Um, so that really changes the way you market. So the way we market is to... ...give away as much practical information. Not not sort of in the old days with marketing you would write a teaser article. Oh there's a big change and well, it might have all these problems. You know, come and see us. Now we say oh, there's been a big change. These are all the problems and these are all the ways to, to get around it. You go on our website, we've got, you know, mounds of content. Um, and then I'm sure a lot of people just use, it, you know, use the information... ...sort themselves out, maybe stick with their existing lawyer, whatever. Um, ...but a lot of people respect the fact that we're very open with our information. And what that means is that they then come to us... ...when they're either partly into it and they need some... So ...that sort of experience that, you know, you, you can't read about. Now, what does it actually look like? What should I do here? I've got two choices. Which one should I choose? Um, and that's what they pay us ridiculous hourly rates for. And that, that, is, that is valuable. But just access to information... ...that those days are over. A lot of firms still play in that game. Um, but you know, I think they're finding it harder and harder. So coming back to your question, we, we publish a lot of information on our website. So we get between 450 and 600 unique hits a day on our website, which for law firms, it's about 12 and a half thousand a month, which is a lot. Um, we've got 3000 people on our direct marketing database and we get like a 35% open rate. We send out a newsletter every two weeks. So, I mean, I'm not. Totally across all the statistics, but that's that's pretty that's pretty high as far as sort of direct email opening rates. So, so stuff.
0: do you have someone who, who writes the content for those we newsletters?
1: Do, the staff do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, okay. 100%, yeah. So
0: you say you walk out into the the corrals and you tap someone on the shoulder and say, right, I want you to write an article on this for next week's newsletter.
1: Um, yeah, well, it sort of dovetails mm-hmm. in with our training. So, okay. um, what happens is we'll solve a client's problem. You know, they'll come okay. in with a new problem. And then the person who's worked on that matter... ...will then give a training session. So we share the knowledge. Right. Okay. And then part of the training session is that they then write a, a layman's version... ...and that goes on the website.
0: That's fantastic. And then they might
1: do like a checklist... ...and we might do a precedent document mm. that sort of stuff. So there's a whole process to take that intellectual content... ...and get it out to as many people as it's relevant to. Um, and also sharing the knowledge within the firm as well. So... We have specialists who have particular areas of interest... ...but all of our staff have what are called platform skills... ...which means they need to understand, you know, business structures... ...they need to understand estate planning for entrepreneurs... ...they need to understand property structures... ...they need to understand um, the, the basic concepts of litigation and dispute resolution... ...they need to understand basic family law concepts for business owners and investors. So we target business owners and investors... but. Um, ...you know, the HR issues, have you got an employment issue? That generally go to Louise. You know, if you've got a mm. uh, family law issue, that'll go to Marie. If you've got a tax issue, it'll go to myself or Damien. So we've each got our sub-specialties but we all... ...if you come in and have a discussion with any of us... ...we would be able to identify the issues. Another thing, coming back to Arthur Anderson... ...was that the reason we read the Tax Act from beginning to end... ...was not so we knew everything. I mean, that's just not possible. ...but we knew how to spot the issues Mm -hmm. so that we could then say to people... ...hey, you've got an issue here, you know. And and then either do the research ourselves... ...or send it to someone who knew what they were doing. So um, that's something we do here too.
0: Okay. This is the last technical question then we've got to move on to some fun (laughs) stuff... ...because I think everyone will find that quite interesting. Anyway, the the last technical question I've got is... ...I I know that you um, are uh, a a great um, believer in fixed fees... Can you just tell us how that the fixed fee pricing of legal services in your organisation works? Um, I'm interested more from a point, like I, I know that it's easy to say to a customer, here's um, a brief on what we think the issue is and this is going to cost you um, $3,000 to $5,000, let's say. What I'm more interested in is... Um, when it derails, it goes over that brief, yep. right? It's I don't know what it's called, upscoping the job or whatever. Yep. But how do you jump in and tell your client and manage the relationship and say, look, we've got a problem here. This has gone um, higher than what we've quoted. How do you handle that?
1: Okay, I'm going to give you a longer answer than you <laughs> probably want, right? So another issue about having a whole lot of relatively junior staff is that um, the number one bottleneck becomes pricing client comes in with a problem, they might even know the problem... ...but they don't know how much to quote. So what would generally happen is that would go to a partner... ...and the partner would quote, right? If all the jobs came to me to quote, I'd be just quoting 24 hours a day, Mm. right? So that doesn't work. So I needed to put in place a pricing framework... ...that a second-year lawyer can can work with. Um, Fixed fees obviously and sort of project-based fees um, are the way to go there. The problem is that almost every law firm that you speak to these days, oh, yeah, no, we like fixed fee price, blah, blah. And you go, okay, well, where's your price list? And I go, well, what's a price list? And you go, well, how can you have fixed fees without a price list? Or, well, uh, you know, we just, um, the client tells us what they want and we get it's, it's just not possible, mm-hmm. right? So we've got a um, 168 page detailed price list, the scopes, what we do, and the price we charge. Um, we had it on the internet for a while, and I think, um, it was mainly just getting downloaded by other lawyers so we took it down. But <laughs> Not that I really care about that but um, uh, but we use that internally. So and every time we do a new type of job or the scope of a job changes because of a law change, we change our price list. So we're updating our price list every week. Um, so what that means is that everybody can price. So that's the that's start. Secondly, um, although we do fixed price, we track every minute of everybody's time like every law firm does um, but rather... Th- ...instead of using that to actually bill a client... ...we use that as pricing data. So we can work out whether or not, you know... ...something's profitable or not profitable... ...and that can then feed back into our fixed prices. So that's that's our pricing methodology and it's taken years to develop. Like you can't just move to fixed pricing in legal services... ...you've actually got to develop a price list... ...that reflects your cost structure. Um, As far as your question about what you do when something goes wrong... um, ...and it invariably does... The bottom line is that we will generally eat that in the sense that um, that's our problem. Okay. So, it, you know, you go to a building company and there's, people have used this analogy before... ...but you, you can go and get a fixed price to build a 40-storey building. Fixed price contract from a builder, right? But yet you can't get a fixed price from a lawyer to draft a licence agreement. I mean, seriously. You know. The... the Another thing about fixed pricing is that it constrains you... ...to only doing what you know about. Mm. Right? So if you are another thing that tends to happen is lawyers will creep into areas... ...that they're actually not experienced enough or mm. shouldn't be doing working in. Um, and they don't know what it's going to cost. So you're basically paying them an hourly rate for them to explore a new area of law. Whereas if you only practice in the areas that you are experienced in... Mm. ...then you know what it's going to cost. If you want to expand outside of those areas, it should be at your cost... You you say, well, I think it's going to cost five grand. And if it costs 50 grand, you've just invested $45,000 in your own learning, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So the bottom line is we we will generally um, eat our inefficiencies. Where that changes is, and this is really the difficult thing about fixed prices, is scope creep. So the clients will say, you know, we want a licence agreement. And then, you know, the licence agreement morphs into a... Um, a license IP holding structure and then that morphs into you know international issues whatever it might be so you know one of the things that this has comes down to the tight element of the loose tight management is some of our elements are the tight elements are around scope so um, you know we, we train the lawyers to be very conscious of scope and give clients a lot of notice when the scope's changed or it's going outside of scope. Um, so that's really we manage fixed pricing stuff ups through through scope. Um, sometimes we'll let the, let the scope creep on because, you know, we're still we're still covered and we, we're trying to get an outcome for the client. Other times when, you know, we're getting taken advantage of a little bit, um, then we'll be a little bit harder on the scope and say, this is clearly outside of scope. So that, that sort of tends to be how we do it. That's really useful. Okay, enough
0: technical questions. Now the fun <laughs> stuff. Uh, now, can we move on to your love of watches, please? Right. Yeah, yes, sort of. Getting, I get a few tears to the eyes <laughs> given the recent events. But okay. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe you can <laughs> explain that to us. But um, I, I learnt this this week, and I was fascinated by the fact that you had a watch that um, there was only, I think, six of in the world, and this company is only allowed to issue a new watch whenever someone uses an eject
1: seat in their planes. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> close. Close. There's more than that, but uh, yeah. So. Um, uh, that, that's uh, one of the watches that I had. So the, the backstory to this is that we got broken into a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you should do a podcast on insurance... ...and that, that's something that people, I think, could, could do with. Um, and, yeah, so all, all my watches got stolen and all my wife's jewellery... ...and um, we found that although we had a bucket load of contents insurance... Um, ...the deductible limit was two and a half per item. So uh, it sort of capped things a little bit. But, yeah, so coming back to your question about this watch, it's... it's um, uh, it's a relatively new watch company. So with watches, the older companies, you know, um, Patek Philippe and Rolex and all the ones everybody knows about, um, you know, have obviously been around, you know, for centuries, whereas um, Bramont is the... Um, it's actually an English watch company um, and it's relatively new. When I say that, it's a couple of decades. Um, and it's two brothers who set up this... this, um, ..and they, they, they do... Most of their own movements and and um, cases and whatnot, um, but what they their father was a pilot, and um, obviously pilots and planes is a big thing in watches, you know Breitling and all this sort of stuff, you know it's sort of a lot of association marketing, I think they call it. Um, so Brabant was no different. So um, these two brothers' a passion for for watches and and watchmaking and a passion for flying. So um, they. Um, They've been really successful in their marketing through taking association marketing to the next level, right? So, um, one of their watches, the one that I had, was called a, a Martin Baker. And now, Martin Baker is the—they supply ninety plus percent of the ejector seats for all jets in the world, right? So, all the you know the U.S. jets, you know, their Fifteens, everything has a Martin Baker ejector seat, right? So they made this watch, which was basically—it's um, got a Faraday cage, like an anti-magnetic cage built into the to the case. Um, it's got shock absorbers so that when you get ejected out of an airplane, it doesn't doesn't move. The, you know all sort of stuff. You know, it's, it's just crazy. Um, and uh, I had the MB three, which was like the Mark three, and it was a GMT. So I had the, the dual time thing. This was all mechanical watch. That's so not, my, um, and the. Yeah, so basically um, they, they, they issue two lines of these watches. Um, one of them is to um, the people who eject out of the aeroplane... ...and that's got a certain colour bezel. And then they issue another one, a matching one... ...that they sell to the public. And I had number 12, which was pretty cool. Um, uh, and, you know, not, not hugely expensive but, you know... Ridiculous amount of money to spend on a watch, but it's like male jewellery, so, you know, <laughs> you sort of get away with it. But um, can, can, can I just interrupt for one moment? Sorry, I've got to understand this. So
0: am I correct in thinking that this company gives a free watch to the guy? Correct. They, yeah, yeah. They get yeah,
1: a free watch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Well actually I, know, I don't know about I'd have to check that. But okay, yeah, let's just assume that.
0: Okay, that, so yeah, let's assume yeah. that. So you've got number, did you say twelve, 12 right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So do you know this
1: guy? No,
0: no. You no, don't get to meet no, him? There's no, no, no. little story no, no, in no connection there. In, there's
1: no, no connection. It no. just no. happens in the background. Yeah, yeah. It's part of their association marketing. I mean they also do um, I think I mentioned the right flyer. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so this is another one where um, they've got a bit of the actual material from the Kitty Hawk, the first plane ever to fly, um, the Wright Brothers' actual aeroplane, and they've chopped it up and each of their watches has a bit of um, the, the, the basically of the wing of the first aeroplane ever to fly. Well, embedded in the... Embedded in the back, yeah. the back of yeah, the watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's that like, super limited edition, you know, it's quite expensive. <laughs> but um, another one they've done, um, they've got one that's that they um, have... There's a certain element of the US Air Force that just does very, very high-level surveillance, like it's in the stratosphere, basically. I've forgotten what they call that one, but you know they've, they've built a watch with them. The Boeing pilots have built one in consultation with um, with Boeing. <laughs> um, they've recently released one with Jaguar. So, and and the face looks like you know it's got components that reflect the dashboard of of, of the Jaguar, you know, sports, whatever. You know, yeah, it's and it's just really interesting, but fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's gone. That's great. <laughs> well, let's hope that you get some Everybody sort of... Anybody out there comes across one, number 12, it's mine. Which <laughs> it should yeah. be easy, pretty easy for the police yeah. to track, yeah, I well, imagine. We've given them... Yeah, we've mm. given details
0: so, Okay, yeah. last question for you and thanks yep. for all this amazing information. It's <laughs> um, totally relevant out there. No, sure. no, no. no. Uh, the last question is about the Eclipse 550. <laughs> right. So now I've just explained this we, to everybody. You've got to explain that we're a little bit yeah. tram- So tram- we, were, we were having lunch <laughs> and you said, Kim, how would you like to buy um, a share in a private jet? And I almost fell off my chair. And you said, well, it's not actually that expensive. We can get one out of the US. It's going to cost us a million dollars. We need five investors to put in $200,000 each. (laughs) It'll it'll cost you each year $35,000 and we can hire it out. And if we're successful with doctors and lawyers and accountants using it, then it may not actually cost us anything out of our pocket. Potentially, yeah. So, yeah, can yeah. you just explain to us a bit about your logic? Um, and, and I know you're very serious about this. I'm not quite <laughs> as serious because, um, uh, but I, I, I'm happy to do anything that makes me money or gives me lifestyle. <laughs>
1: to yeah, be more lifestyle than money. I yeah, that's right. It's going to cost you money. This one,
0: okay. <laughs> but but um, this is part of your commuting to Sydney. I imagine you use it on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. so I, it helps to have a pilot's license, which which I do. Um, and that's, I guess that, that is that is the sort of key because the pilot's more expensive than the aeroplane. You know, that, that's the okay. bottom line. So, um, and if you go to the US, most mid-tier law firms and, and above have have a private private jet. You know, yeah, and yeah. almost you know all of your business people you know will commute with a with a either you know a jet prop or a you know a Cirrus or you know it, there's, it's a whole it's not considered the rich and famous types. Scenario no. over there, it's considered a, it's a business tool basically. Whereas here, yeah. it's a bit different. Although there is, you know, there is a subculture in Australia that not many people are aware of. There are a lot of people with with you know private jets and, and airplanes that they use for business purposes, um, hidden you know in the sheds at Adelaide Airport and really? around the place in Sydney. Yeah, I mean it's it it is um, it's not as out there. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's a lot more expensive here, primarily because of the cost of the pilot. Um, but, you know, the jets themselves or the aeroplanes themselves are not that expensive. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is a little bit of a pipe dream but it's, it's um, I mean, just the crazy things like I think I was mentioning that it's like $65 to land at Sydney Airport, you know, in your own plane whereas you'd think it would be thousands. Um, how, how much does it cost to
0: leave it on the tarmac overnight? Or in, um, $100. Oh, yeah, $100. 110 yeah, yeah, yeah. So cheap, isn't it? It's yeah. going to cost more in taxi
1: to Pretty and much, from the yeah, airport. Well, but unfortunately, you've still got to get the taxi. The <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, whether or not that happens or not. So you gotta, you got to have a dream. You've got to have something to get you up in the morning. Brilliant. I, I haven't <laughs> stopped thinking about it since you
0: mentioned it. Uh, and the thing is that you've actually... the sad. Part, well, sorry, the, the surprising thing is that you've probably got enough people that can actually join forces and well, it may become I mean, a reality. Yeah,
1: so the other thing is there's a, there's a whole... Um, community of commuters from in Adelaide and Sydney that travel between mm. the two the two places it's amazing so you know you I've got friends that you know I've been doing it 15 years you know pretty much every week um so you do meet up with people on a regular basis who basically sharing the same lifestyle um so yeah I mean that that, that alone's been a really interesting part of having an office in in two two states. I've got surgeons
0: who are Uh, customers as well, and they often do um, consulting to country hospitals. Yeah, yeah. And their wives are so worried that when they drive down there late at night in their Porsches or Ferraris or whatever it is, (laughs) that they're going to hit a kangaroo or, you know, have some accident, whereas this would be a hell of a lot safer and quicker.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, there is, I know at least one doctor who I think he's based in Mount Gambier, but he flies into Ordinga. Uh, he's got a Kovalis which is an amazing plane. It's like it's the fastest um, non-standard like standard aspirated engine um, propeller aeroplane in the world. Um, so that's like a non-turbo or non-turbine. Mm. Um, and uh, that's a really nice looking plane. So he, yeah, he, he comes into to Uldinga. I think I'm pretty sure it's from Mount Gambier um, and that's how he commutes. So wow. Pretty, um, yeah. It's Amazing. Fun. All right, well, we're going to end up
0: there. Thank you ever so much for your um, uh, advice. It's been so interesting today. I've got to let you get back to work and and, and do some um, work in the office and everyone else is walking around here staring at us, which is quite interesting. But <laughs> thanks for listening and if you're interested, go to our website, which is accountinginsider.net. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks.